0: Okay, so like I said, we are going through 1 Corinthians, and we find ourselves in chapter 7, starting at verse 10 today, and find ourselves on the topics of divorce and remarriage, which are obviously a a very difficult and sensitive um, topic. Within, Within the church, certainly there are those who are divorced, and even when the best of two difficult Options, divorce is painful. Some of you find perhaps marriage extremely difficult and are wondering if, if divorce is the best option. Some of you grew up with divorced parents and know the pain and the, the difficulties that that brings, or perhaps your parents didn't divorce, but life was really hard because of a difficult marriage. And then many of us have walked with loved ones and, and family members through consideration of divorce and perhaps divorces and, and experienced that through them. So all that to say, all of us have been affected by divorce in some way or the other, as well as just the brokenness of marriage, you Have two sinful people living together, doing life together, even when it doesn't lead to divorce. And so that is immense reason to, as we go through this, to keep in mind the primacy of God's grace of our identity in the grace of God and not our performance before God. As a child of God, if you have come to God through faith in Jesus, you are not your sin. You are not the sins of others against you. You are not your past. That's not what matters most about you. That's not who you are. That's not where your worth comes from. Um, Our our marriages, it is true, have fallen short of God's ideal. Our marriages at times, if we were honest, have been contexts for words and actions and thoughts that have been downright ugly and wicked. But do not reflect the goodness and wisdom of God. But, God is rich in mercy, compassionate, the savior of the broken, the weak, the guilty, the needy. It is those who know their unworthiness, their unworthiness, that God most welcomes and woos to himself. So rather than just trying to Ignore or shove whatever pain or fears or guilt or anxieties we may have around this topic deeper down inside of us. Rather than trying to find comfort through things like bitterness and self-pity or self-justification, may I plead with you to come to the cross with confidence. That you can come to Jesus right where you are, right in your life situation. Hebrews 4, 16 says, let us then draw near to, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. With confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. This is where our identity lies. God's abundant and tender grace poured out in Jesus on the cross is where our identity and worth lies, has the last word on who we are. And so stand in that today, stand in that every day, keep that in mind as we go forward in this today. Not just what God says, which is obviously important, but who God is. So we have three things to consider today. First, God's ideal for marriage. Second, when divorce happens. And then three, some exceptions. First, God's ideal for marriage. Look at 7, 10 through 11. So 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So Paul says that this is not merely his command, but comes from Jesus, um, and that is because in the Gospels, in the the written record of Jesus' teaching, we have commands on this very topic, which Paul is simply reiterating. And what Jesus taught is that marriage is meant to be a lifelong, exclusive relationship. And so if we're to talk about divorce and understand what the Bible says about divorce, we have to first talk about marriage. We're not going to get very far in understanding what the Bible says about divorce if we don't understand God's vision and purpose for marriage. And Jesus himself demonstrates this when he's asked a question about divorce. And he says, essentially, let's talk about marriage first. Um, so in Matthew 19, in one of the passages that Paul is certainly has in mind and he's, as he's writing this, um, we're going to read it in full because we're going to come back to it a couple times. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So Jesus says that marriage is this deep, mysterious, spiritual union that is more than two people simply deciding to come together and commit their lives to each other. He says what God has joined together. God has a part in this. And what God does when God establishes something, we humans should not undo it or tear it apart. Now, part of what is behind this, as we learn elsewhere in Scripture, is that marriage is a picture or is meant to be a picture however imperfect, of God's faithful love for his people. As a spouse selflessly gives and serves and shows forgiveness and grace and long-suffering and patience to their spouse, this gives a picture, this points to God's faithful, giving, gracious love for his people. Furthermore, the, the, the faithful, lifelong, intended nature of marriage also has in mind our growth in godliness. I quoted the tagline from the, this book, Sacred Marriage, last week um, that suggests, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? What if marriage was about, a, in part, a testing ground for us to be made more like Jesus. It's not that our happiness doesn't matter. God speaks about our joy all over the place, including in the context of marriage. There is joy, and God wants joy for us. He actually even commands us to rejoice. But our happiness isn't the only reason that we get married, our happiness isn't the sole judge of the value of a marriage. And all of this changes the way we think about marriage. Uh, the question is not simply, am I happy? Is this making my life better or easier? Does it, is it meeting my needs? More importantly, the question is, what can my marriage communicate about God's character and relationship to us, his people? About how God relates to us? And how can my marriage sanctify me? expose my sin and selfishness and draw me closer to God. Which means that there can be good purpose in fighting for our marriages even when they don't please us. Even when we cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel. Even when our spouse is selfish and difficult to live with or perhaps turns out to be a different person than we thought they were even when we seem to not enjoy each other anymore. If we remember God's purposes for marriage, there can be good intent and goodness in working through these things. And yet, as much as marriage might give us a picture of God's good purposes and vision and design, it is also clear that marriage is a regular reminder that our world has fallen. That we are sinful beings and that we sin against each other. God's ideal for marriage is not always met. Divorce is a reality. And notice that in this passage, in the verses we just read, God acknowledges this. right? says, if, if she does separate. So, The Bible, in God's wisdom, acknowledges that God's perfect ideal is not always our reality. Which, at the very least, means that God doesn't abandon us when this is the case. God doesn't abandon us when this is the case, even in part due to our own sin. He doesn't say, well, you messed up. It's on you to figure it out. Or I've forgiven you for those other sins, but you've got to deal with this on your own. No. God continues to be with us and to speak to us if our marriages break down. And not just with commands and directives of what to do, which we'll get to in a minute, but also with love and gracious invitation and forgiveness. The most important thing. If you've gone through or are going through a divorce, is not, what should I do? That obviously is important, but the more important question is, who am I? What does God have to say about me? What is my value and worth? Now, God does give us some directions and commands here for when marriages break down. God does point us in certain directions for how we might glorify God when that is our situation. Specifically here, we're given two options. So Paul says she or he should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband or him to his his wife. Now, in advising to remain unmarried, Paul is certainly again drawing on Jesus' teaching. As we saw in that Matthew 19 passage, Jesus teaches that an illegitimate divorce plus remarriage equals adultery. If you kind of boil down those last couple verses of Matthew 19, that's kind of the formula, if you will. Um, An illegitimate divorce plus remarriage equals adultery. Why? Because the two are one. The two became one, and they should still be married. The divorce shouldn't have happened. And so becoming one with another is an act of adultery, joining with someone who isn't your spouse, There are exceptions to this that we'll get to, and there's more to say, but just think about what that is saying. This means that the deep, mysterious, spiritual nature of marriage and the oneness that it involves is such that even if the law and the secular, secular authorities, even if your friends and family say that you are legitimately divorced, that in itself doesn't undo the oneness of marriage. In God's eyes, marriage is more than a legal document and is more than a personal commitment, although it's not less than that, of course. But it is also a spiritual reality that is only broken by something on the level of adultery. Now, this doesn't go quite so far as to say you should pretend like you're still married. Go about your life as if you're still married, even though you got divorced. And certainly, if you got divorced and got remarried, you should not break up a second marriage to return to the first. Whatever the context of your current marriage, that is where God has you. It is a real marriage, and it can be glorifying to God. But the point is, marriage is a deep and mysterious joining of two people with God involved in it and an illegitimate divorce and subsequent remarriage cuts at the heart of that. But there is another option here. Paul says either be un- they should stay unmarried or be reconciled. So perhaps you did get divorced. That need not be a permanent decision perhaps there might be reconciliation. Perhaps either one of you or both have changed, perhaps as an act of repentance in recognizing that the divorce wasn't glorifying to God and seeking after what God commands. We should not let stubbornness or pride keep us from at least considering this as an option. And I would say that we probably don't consider this as an option in our society as much as we ought to. For perhaps understandable reasons, we are quick to move on from a divorce and all that's involved in it, but is it possible that we might also be giving up on what God can do and the changes he can bring about, the changes in hearts and situations, and is it possible that we give up on praying for this too quickly? That much is quite clear in Scripture, but as you begin to consider all that Scripture says on these topics, we also come across some exceptions to what we've just looked at, and essentially there are three that at the very least relate to the command against divorce, so there are exceptions to divorce being sinful, and likely also relate to the command against remarriage. And so, three cases where a divorce is not necessarily sinful for at least one of the parties, and thus remarriage is permitted. And I want to just say that this is a pastoral and personal issue and not just a theological issue. Because bringing these exceptions to bear on specific situations and questions that we experience requires a lot of wisdom and patience and prayer and pastoring or shepherding, whether that's with installed pastors or just with the body of Christ. Um, Because every situation is unique and don't always fit into an easily defined category. These are times for seeking God together in community, in His Word, in prayer. And I can tell you that a sermon like this in 30 minutes is not going to answer all your questions. These are personal and pastoral situations. But we do have these three categories that God gives us for when the bond of marriage can be broken, allowing for divorce and remarriage. So the simplest one and easiest one we'll go to first, and it's at the end of chapter 7, so we're going to jump ahead to the last two verses. It says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she th- wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier, if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So pretty simple death of a spouse dissolves a marriage, and frees a spouse to remarry. Uh, Paul says, uh, as he does throughout chapter 7, he kind of gives his, ap- his like personal preference, and we know that Paul prefers singleness, but he's always clear to state that this is not a command of God. God gives the gift of singleness and the gift of marriage. All right, that one's simple enough. Moving on, the second except- exception we've um, already encountered In the Matthew 19 passage, passage, where Jesus talked about sexual immorality in those last couple verses. So consider verse 9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Similarly, we get in Matthew 5, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Uh, This word translated sexual immorality we've already encountered in 1 Corinthians. It's the the Greek word porneia, and it refers to biblically unlawful sexual activity, any sexual activity outside of a biblical marriage. So what is Jesus saying? Well, in marriages where there has not been such where there has not been sexual unfaithfulness, he says that divorce plus remarriage equals adultery. Because the two are one, and that has not been broken until the remarriage. However, if there has already been sexual unfaithfulness, a divorce and remarriage can no longer be said to constitute adultery. Because that sexual unfaithfulness in the marriage greatly cuts at the deep and mysterious oneness of a marriage, such that the offended party is not sinning by seeking a a divorce. And I would say, is free to remarry. There is another view that some take on these passages. So some think the exception only pertains to the divorce, but not to the remarriage. And so they would say that remarriage is never allowed, except in the case of the death. They would also point to the fact that Paul doesn't explicitly say that remarriage is ever permitted in the case of a divorce. Um, I actually used to hold that view before I spent some time working through these texts in depth. But I think the most logical reading is to see in Matthew 19 and and 5, commits adultery as referring to the entire situation, the combination of divorce and remarriage. That's the one situation that Jesus is speaking to, and so the exception also applies to that one situation, divorce and remarriage. Adding to this view is the fact that in both Jewish and Greek culture, the cultures that Jesus was speaking into, a bill of divorce meant one was free to remarry. That's literally what the bill of divorce, when you got a divorce, said you are free to remarry. And so if Jesus wanted to say that a divorce could be legitimate, but the subsequent remarriage illegitimate, he would have to state that very clearly because that's what was the case in that culture, but he does, does not do that. But we should note that even in these situations, divorce is never commanded, right? It's never required in such cases, a commitment to remain in their marriage and seek reconciliation and healing and forgiveness can be a powerful witness to how God interacts with and deals with us. Right the Bible often brings up such situations to help us understand God's relationship to us. Repeatedly, we were wayward and unfaithful Lovers, giving ourselves to many other loves and spouses, ignoring the God who created us. And God, far from abandoning us, moved toward us and gave himself for us. And even now when we sin, God doesn't turn away from us, but moves toward us. He does everything to draw us back to himself. And then there is a third exception, which we find in the rest of the passages that we'll look at today, starting at verse 12. Paul says, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. And so he's simply saying that there's no written command of Jesus on this matter, largely because this situation wouldn't have existed in the time of Jesus. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, Or how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And so apparently, as the gospel came to Corinth and was preached and people responded, whole families didn't necessarily all come together. A husband came or a wife came and their spouse wasn't converted with them. And perhaps the thought was, well, what do I do? Am I, am I going to be led astray by my unbelieving spouse? Am I going to be contaminated by them or something? And Paul doesn't have a direct teaching of Jesus, but what he gives us is still God's word for us, and he says, no, you shouldn't get divorced in this situation. You shouldn't separate. You shouldn't think that you are made less holy because of this, if anything, the opposite. Now, what does he mean by the f- saying that the spouse or the children will be made holy by the believing spouse. It's going to be kind of a difficult statement. Um, but if you go on a couple more verses to verse 16, it's clear that this doesn't mean that the non Christian believer or children are made Christians, are saved simply by their being in the family with a believer. Um, you are not saved by being born into a Christian home or by marrying a Christian. And so the most that we can really say here is that there seems to be some positive spiritual impact in having a believing spouse in the home. One commentator says that the unbeliever is set apart in a special way that hopefully will lead to their salvation. And then we get the exception. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so, the brother or sister is not enslaved. And so in such a situation, the believing spouse, neither the believing spouse nor, we can reason, the church, is to bind the unbelieving partner with God's word. They don't claim to submit to God and his view of marriage. They don't claim Christ. They haven't been changed by Christ. They don't have the spirit in them. We shouldn't expect or demand unbelievers to live as believers and bind them to that. Again, the believing spouse shouldn't seek a divorce, but they aren't bound if the unbeliever leaves. Now, this needs perhaps a little bit of explanation, definition. What is an unbelieving spouse? Is that merely someone who just makes no claim to Christ? Is a believer someone who merely claims Christ, or is a believer also someone that shows the fruit of that by the way they live? I think the answer is both. And so I think it's legitimate to see here and apply this to both someone who makes no claim to Christ and someone who makes a claim to Christ with their words and says, yeah, I'm a Christian, but displays no evidence of that in their life. When such a person leaves a marriage, the believing partner is not bound to keep it together and, I would say, is free to be remarried. What does it mean, then, to separate? How broadly can we understand this? Um, One definition of this has willful, irremediable, willful, irremediable desertion. I think that's a pretty good definition, willful and irremediable, unable to be. What is that word? Remed fixed. I can think of a couple situations that would clearly fit into this. So the one most obvious is a partner, a, a spouse says, I want a divorce and is absolutely committed to that course. That would be separation. A second, a spouse actually physically leaves the marriage even though they don't initiate a divorce, but they're gone. They're, they're not around anymore. In this situation, I think it would be appropriate with time and seeking resolution, remedy, for the believing partner to initiate the divorce. Now, beyond that, there is lots of discussion about broader implications, applications of this passage. Might there be things that rise to the same level of seriousness and break down and tear apart the bond of marriage as either willful desertion or sexual immorality? Um, I and, and, and the other elders here agree that they're that there may be, though wisdom is certainly needed, to consider these. And again, these are questions to walk through with much patience and prayer and ideally in community with other believers. And we cannot go through every single situation, nor would it be profitable to in a context like this. But I will just mention a couple that, May rise to this level of seriousness. Uh, one is perhaps incessant addictions, with no resolve to address them, to gambling or alcohol or drug or drugs or pornography or other things, such that one is functionally absent from a marriage and is actually ruining the marriage. The other one that comes to mind. And is often discussed is, is is abuse. Whether abuse of a spouse or abuse of kids, if there are kids in the marriage, seems to be something that can rise to the seriousness of either desertion or adultery, can really injure the one-flesh union in a deep way. And even in these situations, and often in these situations, the abusing partner may not actually separate, but is really working to destroy the marriage. Now, our ideas of abuse today are are wide-ranging. It needs to be said that abuse is not simply being sinned against. You will be sinned against in marriage. Abuse is more than experiencing hurt and hardship in marriage. We are talking about something rising to the level of and striking at the core of marriage like desertion or adultery. And of course, this is not a question of whether an individual or the church needs to step in when this there is abuse. We do. They do. We should care for the weak and the hurting and those being abused and work to provide protection and safety for them but this is a question of whether abuse and to what extent and what kind constitutes grounds of divorce. And in light of all the Bible says about both divorce and about protecting the weak and helpless, we think it certainly can. Okay, with all of that, Let me offer just a few words, if divorce is something that is in your past or perhaps more um, applicable to everyone, how ought we to counsel and comfort and speak to a loved one who is working through or has worked through a divorce in the past? On the one hand, as I've been stressing all along, know that divorce does not define you as a person. You belong to Christ. He is with you and for you. He died for you. He is pleased with you. If you are his, he rejoices over you. No matter the details of your past, including any divorce, you are not defined by that. Your worth is not in that. On the other hand, and because of the incredible grace of God, be willing to confess any sin that you may have in your past, but also in relation to a divorce. Be willing to bring that to Jesus. Confess it and receive his forgiveness. In doing this, you are not letting that sin or that situation have too much power over you. You are, in fact, being freed from it. You are being freed from the lies and condemnation of Satan that that is still who you are, that that has the final word on you. No, the grace of God is sufficient. The grace of God in the blood of Jesus is the last word on you. And then as you move forward, as you consider your situation in light of Scripture and consider which path most glorifies God, Again, remember that the most important question is not your marital status, should I remarry or not? As we saw last week, both marriage and singleness can, are, are good, can be gifts of God's grace for a season or for, for life, ways to serve and honor God and bring glory to God and serve others. But the most important thing about you is whether you are Christ's, whether he is yours, And whether you are living your life for His glory or not. Which you have the opportunity to do right now. Uh, We are told that Jesus, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross. And we are told that Jesus invites us into His joy. Desires His joy for us. There is joy in belonging to God in Christ and resting in his care and provision and his presence and his promises. He is the treasure of greatest price, right? For which it is worth losing everything that we might gain him. And so that is our greatest hope. And that is available to us here and now, whatever our story is, whatever our past is, whatever our current struggle is, That is our hope. Let's pray.